BBC Radio 5 Live. What's happened with your bathroom? Just everything. <laughs> yeah. So I had to precisely measure a container and left it for a certain amount of time and then went, ah, so it's a quarter of the time full in six hours. So if I okay. leave it well, for nine through, hours... Wait a minute, so this, this is your bathroom and where is the leak coming from? It's from the supply line to the toilet, so it's clean water... Supply line to, to the toilet. Okay. Yeah, so it's clean water just to um, um, <laughs> get that out there. I need because I'm, I'm trying to get the full picture. So, wh- where is wh- first of all, what kind of container is it? It's just a plastic tub. But something that had f- food in it once. No, no, oh. it just had like old stuff that I had in it before, bits and pieces. Well, that's not helpful. It's old stuff. I mean, that could be antiquities. Oh no, that's just oh, I can't remember. I think it was just like it's like old passports. Pieces of paper, old screening tickets, like this. But so it's a plastic container. Yeah, I, I live in a studio apartment that like doesn't have drawers. <laughs> There's no cupboards or drawers, right. so everything is in plastic boxes or on the floor, artfully arranged. Okay, so, so you this t- is getting very into how messy my life is. <laughs> hey, no one's judging you. So you, so you, the the plastic container is under the kind of the supply pipe to the loo, and how rapid is the the leak the dripping it's like the baseline to another one bites the dust it's like ding, 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 ding. it's literally like that have we started by the way yeah i don't know if this is oh yeah <laughs> excellent Oh, so, that's good. I'm glad that's all there. That was always the plan. Love Please. to share details of my terrible, yeah. messy life in which I can't do anything adult. Do you know what? Well, no, having a leak is is quite adult. That yeah, but wrong. how I'm dealing with it is not good. Putting a container and hoping that it will not overflow within okay, the no, time put, that I'm Putting here. the container thing is quite an adult thing to do. The hoping <laughs> the problem will go away in some shape, way, or form, probably isn't. You're going to have to get somebody in at some point. Or why not have a go yourself? Oh, no. (laughs) That's not happening. Come on. Um, Interesting that you say that uh, it's dripping to the baseline of Another One Bites the Dust because, obviously, Bohemian Rhapsody is the the, uh, big film that's out this week. And uh, although, uh, of course, we'll cover it in the programme properly, but we've got so much... Um, correspondence on it that I thought I might read some out now, if that's okay. Uh, This is from Justin Davies, who says, I caught an early morning screening of Bohemian Rhapsody on the same day that I saw A Star is Born for the third time. Good. Three times. That's the kind of dedication I want to see. Uh, It struck me as ironic that the depiction of the true story of Freddie Mercury and Queen, a film that actually involves two members of the band, Brian May and Roger Taylor as producers, hit many false notes, while Bradley Cooper's portrayal of a rock star in decline is heart-rendingly believable. 
I found Bohemian Rhapsody extremely uneven, maybe not surprising given its history of cast and directorial changes, but many scenes, particularly those between the band members supposedly going through the creative process of writing lyrics and music, were flat and far from true to life. The leaden script did not help. Contrast that with the creative process depicted in the fictional A Star is Born, which for me entirely ring true. I realised that the decision must have been made that BR should target a family audience and get a 12A certificate, but that has left vast holes in the story of Freddie Mercury, leaving him as a star shorn of much of his life story. Uh, thanks for that, Justin. Um, this is from Jessica, who says, I'm not particularly a fan of Queen. I like that song about large posteriors and that one with David Bowie. However, Bowie, however, I enjoyed the film overall, only wincing a couple of times at the clunky dialogue. The lead performances were excellent and I appreciated the Wayne's World nod. So all in all, an entertaining evening spoiled only by the good people of Watford. Surely not all of them. Uh, who did not stay to watch the credits. How can you watch 135 minutes of a film about Freddie Mercury and then not stay to see actual Freddie being actually brilliant? Why, oh why, did the cinema put the lights up? I think this just encourages people to leave and stand in front of those still watching while they slowly put their coats on. As I said, I'm not even a Queen fan, but I thought it impolite. Rock on. Jessica. Actually, that is the thing, isn't it? There's a lot of films which... You know, biopics um, by their very nature, but a lot of them now do end with the end credits having either photographs or footage of the real person. Do you have a feeling on that? I think it, it does put the film at a disadvantage because then you start immediately comparing all the little minutiae of the performance to go, oh, no way he did that wrong or he he did that movement slightly wrong. I think... It's it's never going to improve the film to to put that direct of a comparison while you're still in the cinema. Well, also, I wonder if it's placed there because the filmmakers want to say, look, it is based on real things and they were real people and we got it pretty close. But most of the time I just think, oh, well, why, didn't, why aren't we just watching the real person? I'm not quite sure why you're showing now. I realise that the person didn't quite look as much as like them as I yeah. thought they did. I feel like the only time it is quite advantageous is when it the film is about someone you don't immediately know very well or you just perhaps don't actually know how they looked. <laughs> <laughs> and so then it's quite useful because the credits start and you go, ah, okay, that's what they look like. They cast a pretty good person. <laughs> I feel like sometimes that's helpful. But when it's Freddie, I mean, we all know what Freddie Mercury looks like, so... I'm going to do one more, which is, uh, this is from Graham Kibble-White, who says, uh, Tonight I saw Bohemian Rhapsody. It was empirically awful, but thanks to the music and the performances, I absolutely adored it. Nothing really matters. See what he did there? Very good. Thank you, Graham. Um, before we uh, start the show, uh, of course, Bohemian Rhapsody is the big release and we'll be talking about other films uh, coming up as well. But um, I, I presume that you were... You know, also shaken, perhaps, I don't want to put words in your mouth, uh, had uh, feelings about the big news story of the week. I don't know how you... Do you want to talk about that or is that something... Wait, what... It's one, which one, one? big news story. No? Yep. Simon Mayo. Oh. Continuing this programme. Yes. There was a moment, I don't know for you, but there was a moment when I heard he was leaving a radio show that I did think... <gasps> 
Yeah, I did get a text from my father going, what's going on? <laughs> Tell me everything, which in did, fact... Did he work for the BBC or MI6 or something? That sounded... No. Oh, I see. He was just interested. In, uh, oh, I see. No, he just wanted to know exactly what was happening and how this would affect his daughter's life. So I assured him that nothing... That's a good dad. Nothing to worry about. <laughs> I know dad. I saw on social media the, the amount of relief that was out there with people saying, oh, thank goodness, you know, he'll yeah. still be st- steering this ship. I mean, I mean, he won't listen to any of this because, you know, he's like that and he's always been like that. Um, but yeah, I was really, really yeah. relieved as a fan of the show. I know. And it's, yeah, I'm sad that they're not here this week to be able to to celebrate that fact. And so instead we have to be here and force people to imagine a world in which the worst came true. Which the worst came true. (laughs) (laughs) So I personally feel guilt being here after that news, after that moment of terror for everybody. Well, listen, I, you know, I've always been aware of the fact that uh, whenever I've been on, certainly there's been this kind of <laughs> intake of kind of, oh, no, they're off. The subs are in. And, you know, I feel like that when I'm on uh, myself because uh, you're great and I love, love listening to the other people who are on, but certainly when it comes to me, I think. I do miss them. But anyway, good news. It was good news that uh, he's continuing on the good ship Wittertainment. And in that light, shall we proceed with the show? Yes. All right. Hey, welcome to the show. Simon and Mark have left for a half-term break. So it's Clarice Lockery and Sanjeev Bhaskar sitting in until four o'clock. Hey, Clarice, how are you doing? Hello. So I was really honoured... Uh, to be your co-host on your first show. Yes. And now, here you are back. Are you now kind of cynical and grizzled? And... I'm 25% less nervous, which 25%. is good. That's a quarter less. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't tell you were nervous on that first show, actually. That's good That's... because inside it was like the whole world was collapsing. <laughs> well, there's a pretty picture uh, to take us, but it's a quarter less Yes. Collapsing this Quarter time. less collapsing now, which is good. It's an improvement. <laughs> so what films will we be talking about today? Yes, yeah, so we've got a 9 to 5 re-release, which mm-hmm. is very exciting. And then we've also got Bohemian Rhapsody, The Guilty, Possum, Bad Reputation, The Hate You Give, An Evening with Beverly Laughlin, and also Utoya, July 22nd. There we go. We'll get through all of those. And if we can't get through them, they'll be in the podcast, of course. Um, and our special guest is none other than Jane Fonda. And uh, uh, to that end, I've got a, an email that's uh, come in today. And this is from Emily Keatley or Kitely. I'm sorry, I'm not sure which uh, is the correct pronunciation. But uh, Emily says, I thought I'd take this opportunity to thank your guest, Jane Fonda, today. As much as I love her actressy skills, this is not why I want to thank her. No, I would like to thank her for... For me, being a fit and healthy teenager throughout the 80s due to her all-new workout video. And now it's on DVD. I am becoming that same fit person I once was again. Yes, admittedly, there'd been a slovenly lapse between my then two-year-old daughter, now 25-year-old daughter Chloe, travelling, chewing the videotape up, so rendering it useless, and the DVD of it being released. But now I am in full swing again, flailing my arms about like a demon-possessed. 
minus the leg warmers this time around. So if you would please do me the honour of passing on a thank you from me or giving her a shout out from me. If pre-recorded to Jane, I would be eternally grateful. Maybe you could have a non-movie DVD of the week and make this a belated one for Jane. It's a lovely thought, Emily, and uh, your uh, wishes are duly passed on. A non-movie DVD of the week on a movie show yeah, might just break some sort of fundamental rules, actually. It's like crossing I also streams. wouldn't be able to lend any commentary because I haven't seen it because I'm an incredibly lazy person, so... Oh, really? Well, here's your chance. It's on DVD. I think you have to wear leg warmers, though. I think those are yes. the rules. But anyway, I uh, was lucky enough to talk to uh, Jane Fonda, and uh, that interview will be on later. Nine to Five is being re-released, so we'll be talking about that as well. And there's a two-part Jane Fonda season coming up at the BFI, so we'll hear from her in about half an hour. And you can get in touch, of course, with us in all the usual ways. Email at mayo at bbc.co.uk, text 85058. And, of course, you'll also find us on Facebook and on Twitter, at Wittertainment. Well, we start in time on a tradition with the UK box office top 10. And at number 10, it's Night School. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. No, well, but I love Tiffany Haddish, so I wish her all the best. Oh, fair enough. Okay, we wish her the best. <laughs> at number nine, The House with a Clock in Its Walls. Which I did see. And so it's interesting that it is directed by Eli Roth, who is quite well known for his very gruesome horrors. And I feel as hard as he tried to rein that side of him in, because this is obviously a children's film, I think an aspect of it still escaped. And so I found this film, for me, surprisingly disturbing for a kid's film. There are certain shots in it and certain just it's even just in the direction, the certain way he'll set, like set up a shot or he'll angle something will just be a little too on the horror side for what is meant to be a, a fun family film. It's a it's a twelve A certificate. Yeah, and there's nothing in it that is too explicit. It it is literally just in the way that he paces things or times things. There's one moment where the camera goes very very close up on the mother and she's whispering terrifying things. And it's I mean maybe children are much stronger than I am, but I found myself a little scared, which I was surprised by. <laughs> At number eight, we have Hunter Killer, and I have uh, a correspondence here from Daniel Green, who says, I didn't expect Mark to like Hunter Killer, but as soon as he said it was the same as Olympus has fallen, I knew I had to see it. Imagine Olympus, stroke London, has fallen in water, and you won't be far wrong. I loved it for what it is. It won't be on the Oscars shortlist, but worth two hours of your time if you want escapism and enjoyable nonsense. I have to say, I don't fully agree because in the universe of Gerard Butler films... Shut up, but what? Yes, yes. I, I feel like it's not quite ridiculous enough to be fun, like Geostorm. It's quite... I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but the things that happen are also not particularly ludicrous. So it's a lot of people pushing submarine buttons, taking the headphones off to say uh, a submarine is close and then putting the headphones back on. So there's not... There's not much visual distraction, if that's what you're looking for in this film. It's quite, it's a lot of submarine talk. <laughs> submarine talk. Yes. <laughs> um, at number seven, we have First Man. Which I am a huge Damien Chazelle fan. But what was interesting about First Man is that I wasn't quite sold on it until the very moment. I mean, presumably this is not a spoiler that he gets to the moon. <laughs> but the oh, moment. No, you've spoiled it for a load of. <laughs> I'm so sorry. He gets to the moon and he puts his foot on the moon. 
spoiler alert, <laughs> but that moment where he just starts to put the foot down, I instantly started crying and I, I couldn't quite understand why. And I think that is such an impressive thing for a film to do is to hit me on an emotional level without me even realizing it. So I, yeah, it took me a while to, to get on board. But once I was on board, I was very pro first man. I, I, I caught this last week, actually, and I thought it was great. I thought it was really good. And in a way, the sedate pace of the film, uh, I, I think, is paid off once you get to the moon. I think suddenly, you know, that achievement feels like an emotional achievement rather than just a physical one. But also, I just thought Ryan Gosling was really good. I used to think Ryan Gosling was kind of fairly bland as an actor. And then over the last couple of years, from La La Land and uh, Blade Runner, and this, I, you know, I've just suddenly thought, actually, do you know, he's really, really good. Maybe he was always good and I just didn't know. I think he's just found the right roles for him because I think because he was in The Notebook, everyone wanted him to be that actor, which I don't think he is. I think he is far more what you see in First Man, which is he's just very good at containing all the emotions in. And he does this this thing that I always pick up on his films where he'll close his hands into a, a little fist and then he just squeezes the fist. And it's such a good little acting technique because you can see him trying to put all the stress and all the emotions right into his fists. And I love it. And I was waiting for it in The First Man and, and, and it's, in, it's in First Man. Hmm. So look for it. I, the fist moment. There was, a, there was an email last week uh, that came into Mark and Simon about somebody who had gone to a screening and then had shouted out uh, one small step for man one giant leap for mankind and uh, I have to say when I was watching the film you know it's coming and I don't know if, if I'd been influenced by hearing that email but within me there was that sudden urge to kind of just shout that out. Well when I went to see it when that moment happened a phone just a phone went off in such perfect timing so the second he got onto the mood and he started putting the foot down and I had started crying, a phone just goes off and it's just it was had the worst ringtone. It was like boop 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 boop. And I just of all the of all the times within that two hour film for a phone to go off, it I think had to be that moment. Maybe there are degrees of breaches of code of contact. You know, because because a phone going off obviously is a breach, but a phone going off at a crucial moment, I think it's got to be a double breach or something, an extra breach. Yeah, Defcon. Def <laughs> two. <Yeah. laughs> Speaking of hunter killer. Um, now, uh, I've got a couple of uh, bits of um, uh, correspondence that have come in. This is from uh, Zane, who says about First Man, the opening scene sold it for me, and all of the following test flight scenes were tense, aided by shuddering low frequencies and somewhat nauseating camera work. The tension of these scenes carried into Neil's home, where you were made to believe the flow of time and the ebb of grief. The score was fantastic, particularly the lunar landing sequence, with the insistent strings accompanying the ever-nearing pocketed lunar surface. I'm getting excited just thinking about it. Not to mention the wallowing theremins. The film did what any good movie about space should do, which was make me pretend, while speeding home on my bike, that I was an astronaut. Thank you, Zane. The other thing about the film, actually, that um, uh, I'm sure has been mentioned elsewhere, is just how good Claire Foy was. In a way, she was that sort of like... Um, she reminded me, her performance kind of and the part she was playing reminded me of uh, the part Felicity, Felicity Jones played in The Theory of Everything, and that you have this person who's not meant to be at the forefront, but actually anchors the film. She was terrific. Mm, that speech where she says, you're just a bunch of boys, is spectacular. It's great, isn't it? Uh, this is from Amanda Fleet, who says, I loved the film generally. The acting was excellent, the story perhaps not what might have been expected, but interesting and a refreshing change, but... 
the grainy shaky cam drove me insane. The shakiness in the space capsules was fine and emphasised the precariousness and physicality of the whole idea of putting a tin can on top of a rocket. But when it came to the domestic scenes and especially the shaky tight close-ups, it pulled me completely out of the film. I was irritated by the fact it was so grainy. Is the projector properly focused? Is there a massive smudge on my glasses? And the shaky cam seemed a completely pointless aspect outside of the capsules, only serving to annoy me. For me, a film is like looking in on a scene, and if I'd been a fly on the wall in the Armstrong house, what I would be seeing wouldn't be shaking all over the place, not least because the brain can coordinate eye movements to compensate for any head movements to ensure a static picture. The clarity of the shots on the moon was beautiful, but this only served to remind me how poor the film quality was in the other bits, so I'm afraid the whole three different qualities to emphasise the three different aspects worked, but not in a good way for me. All best wishes, Amanda Fleet. What did you think about the... Was that... Did they say... Did they see it in IMAX? Uh, It doesn't say. Because I have to agree slightly that as incredible as the scenes on the moon are in the IMAX theatre, if you're thinking of going to one, it gets a bit hard when you are watching such intimate family scenes and it's meant to be so you know, close and and non-epic and you're having this projected on a gigantic screen. So it's hard because I feel like I want to recommend that you should see it in an IMAX screen. But at the same time, I think you do lose a little bit of the film by doing that. I have to say, I, I do kind of partially agree, actually. There was a point at which, you know, that verite thing of having the camera in the room and feeling that you're part of the whole thing, I thought worked brilliantly from that first perspective thing uh, in the capsules. I think, you know, the only hero shot that I can remember of the rockets was, you know, the, the last mission was the Apollo 11 liftoff. And after before that, you didn't really have hero shots of rockets. It was all inside this very cramped capsule. But when it was in, in the home, there were points at which I thought, you know, that verite style. The verite style, if you're doing documentary style, the film, the camera follows the action. You know, it doesn't precede the action. And that didn't always happen. And so then it just felt like I was, you know, being buffeted around a little bit. Yeah, I I like that style, but maybe not in IMAX. Mm. I think that style works better on on a smaller screen where you can actually take all of it in at the same time and you're not having to look at one actor's eyeball at one point. What, just the one eyeball? (laughs) Well, yeah, if the screen's so big, you can only see one eyeball and then you're having to move your head to go look at the other eyeball to see what it's doing. The hidden virtues of IMAX. At uh, number six, (laughs) we have Smallfoot. Yes, which I, I enjoyed. I liked it a lot, but it did that thing in in kids' movies where clearly someone came up with this great concept of, oh, let's have Bigfoot, but they're scared of the people, and they call the people Smallfoot because they have small feet. So great elevator pitch, fantastic. But then someone you know gives them the money, gives them the cast, Channing Tatum's and Diet, everybody, fantastic, and then they actually have to go write the film, and they go, oh, no. <laughs> I have to write a full film now. And so there are moments in the plot that there is this five minute sequence where Common is explaining the mythology of the Yetis. And I just had a moment during that sequence where I just thought, wait, what are we doing? (laughs) This is so complicated. Why did you make this so complicated? So I liked it a lot, but with that slight that slight moment that I just went, oh, okay, I don't know what we're doing right now. Uh, and talking of not knowing what you're doing, number five is Venom. Yes. Oh, Venom. <laughs> I. It's an interesting film because it just feels like it's been projected at us from 2005. 
If this film came out in 2005, I would have been like, yes, makes sense. I, it's all very why, logical. Why would it have made sense in 2005? Because I feel like in 2005, we didn't know what we were doing with superhero films so much. But I feel like in this landscape now, where you have Marvel that have their structure, they know what they're doing, they know how to approach each film. You have Warner Brothers, which they have a structure, they have an approach. It might not be the best approach, but they've decided on something. And then I feel like Sony just have no idea what they're doing. And that's how you get Venom. It's a studio just going, this maybe? This try? And, and the fact that Venom is a Spider-Man villain and he looks like Spider-Man. And that's the whole point in the comics is that he's mimicking Spider-Man. But then they legally are not allowed to have Spider-Man in the film. So even on that level, it just, none of this film makes sense. I, I, I mean, I didn't, I thought it, it tonally, it didn't quite, wasn't quite sure what it wanted to be but I mean I have to I did quite enjoy it and I think that I think possibly I enjoyed it also partly because I think that uh you know the, the main actors are so good Riz Ahmed I thought was great as, as the villain he was not twirly mustachey villain um but also I wonder if it's first filmitis it's a second I wonder if a second film if it's made they can just get on with having fun because the, the voices in the head thing which sort of appeared from nowhere, actually. Um, potentially was really good fun. There was like a double act with just with Tom Hardy and the voice in his head. Yeah, I did enjoy whatever Tom Hardy was doing. I think he, he went full Nicolas Cage in this movie and I really appreciated it. And if there was some way to just take that element of the film out and just have um, just him yelling at himself and that's the film. Well, I wonder I if, you know, that. you know, that Tom Hardy said that, you know, his favourite 40 minutes didn't make the final cut. Yeah. I wonder if it's 40 minutes of Tom Hardy and voice in his head. Almost certainly, because that has to be the reason that he wanted to do this film, is that he could yell at himself. Oh, director's cut, four hours. <laughs> Looking forward the to Tom it. Hardy cut. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Hardy without Laurel cut. Uh, number four, we have Johnny English Strikes Again. I Yeah, I feel like if you're making the third sequel in a comedy series, you have to think of something different to do, which I think is the problem with Johnny English Strikes Again, is that it's the same jokes over again, just in slightly different situations. And it had that frustrating thing for me is when you can see the punchline about five minutes before it happens. And so you're having to watch this full sequence going ah, yes, and then he'll trip over this and then this will happen and then everyone will look at him and then he'll say this excuse, he'll do a funny French accent. And so that that was my struggle with it, is just being able to predict everything, just every single moment of that film before it happened. Did you like the first two? I mean, I didn't, I didn't love the first two, but I feel like at least it felt a bit fresh. I mean, the first one, I think the second one was already struggling from that problem. But at least the first one, I felt like, oh, this is a new character. This is a new situation. I'm learning about him. I'm learning about his clumsiness. But I think by film three, it's just do something new, please. Uh, number three, we have Goosebumps to Haunted Halloween. And uh, this is from James Gordon, who says, I really rather enjoyed Goosebumps. Collected all the books as a child, so I was pleasantly surprised by how good the first one was. It lived up to and exceeded my expectations, but honestly was even more worried this time. Could it possibly catch lightning in a bottle twice? 
I needn't have worried. Slappy is the ultimate Goosebumps villain and this new take on the story was well handled. I laughed a lot and was even a little creeped out in places which for a kid's adventure horror is saying something. It's a really lovely little family movie for Halloween season, something the last few years have lacked. I absolutely agree and almost have nothing to add to that because I I am also of the Goosebumps generation and being able to watch the first one and also the second one just made me feel very nostalgic in a nice way because it captured the atmosphere of those books so well, which was a sort of harmless spookiness. Is there a difference between the Goosebumps generation and millennials? No, I think it's pretty much... Because Goosebumps was very much 90s, I I feel like. So I think it's fairly the same. So if they were really smart in their marketing campaign, they could just refer to everybody of that age as Goosebumps Generation. The Goosebumps Generation. Uh, yeah, they because can have... every millennial read Goosebumps. Uh, well, in that case, I want... Every single I want, one. I want my cut. Then In uh, <laughs> number two, we have Halloween. And this is from Erland, who says, I must say this has got to be the least ambitious ha- Halloween instalment since 1988's The Return of Michael Myers. Just about everything in this film has been done, sometimes better in previous entries in the franchise. Every scene feels like the first thought that came to the writer's head and the plot is just so run-of-the-mill that I struggle to see how it warrants resetting the timeline. What's more, and this can be said for Jurassic World 2, for a film that seemingly has such high regard for the original and relies so heavily on nostalgia for it, I'm baffled at its poor understanding of what made that film great. Gone are the moody set pieces and careful deliberation. Instead, we're served up a kill per minute and a general attitude of what-ifs. All in all, I don't think the new Halloween is a terrible film. I just don't see the point of it. What do you think? I really really enjoyed it because... When it comes to horror, I'm always very fascinated by how different horror films of different decades reflect what was scary during that decade or what our relationship with fear was. And so in 1978, everyone was very scared of serial killers. And so Michael Myers was such a scary figure because, you know, he was like Jeffrey Dahmer. He was like Ted Bundy. And so there was that underlying fear. And, you know, in 2018, it's serial killers is not something we worry about as much. Maybe we should be, but we just don't seem to be that worried about serial killers. And so I liked that the film recognised that and found a way to update it to instead focus on the fact that now in 2018, we're becoming very aware of, as Jamie Lee Curtis was talking about in last week's uh, episode about trauma and about our relationship with trauma, which was something we were not so aware of back in 1978. And so I just just love that. I loved this film finding a way to make it relevant for today instead of just trying to to make Michael Myers scary again because it's hard because he was very much a product of his age. Uh, was as a de- this is from Daryl Tellis who, who sort of agrees with you I think as a dedicated Halloweenian I've seen all 11 films I didn't even know there were 11 11? a lot 11 films I was a bit wary that the new one dumped all the trailers and was a direct sequel from the original I needn't have worried as the film delivered some particularly scary and gruesome moments Halloween is the film to see this Halloween and this from Matt Gemmell poorly directed devoid of any suspense the only interesting parts were the recreations from the first film very disappointing that's Halloween and that's the number two. And number one, we have A Star is Born. Yes, I adore, I loved it so much. It's, to me, such a classic piece of Hollywood filmmaking. And I lots of people have told me, oh, but it's so cheesy and it's so conventional and, and this bit is, you know, too obvious and this bit's too obvious. But I think I I embraced that to a degree. I loved that it felt so Hollywood, that it hit those very Hollywood beats, that it was the giant emotions and these giant performances and everything was just so big about it. And 
I I just think that sort of a star is born is such an eternal concept because it's been remade so many times. And so I think you have to to keep that element of it almost the very Hollywood element, which I think you can see it in all the past versions. There is that sort of big emotion to it. And so I think to see that captured was just perfect. Uh, I haven't seen it. I do want to go and see it, but it was a film that I had promised to go and see with my wife. And so then she got busy and then I got busy and now now I can't see it unless I watch it secretly, of course. Now here's, um, because I'm an Elvis nut. um, So A Star is Born, the version with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. uh, Originally, Barbara Streisand wanted Elvis to play the Chris Christopherson part uh, and met him backstage at one of his concerts in Vegas and said, look, there's this part, it's this kind of like fading and ageing kind of rock star. Would you be up for it? And uh, uh, one of Elvis's friends, one of the Memphis Mafia that I interviewed, said that was the last time he saw a spark of kind of, you know, hopeful creativity in Elvis's eyes. That was kind of like oh. you know, three, four years before he, he died. Quite a sad story. Well, I didn't mean to put it on a day. But anyway, <laughs> um, this is from Fiona Trickett, who says uh, about Star is Born, the whole story from beginning to end was engaging. It didn't just carry you along on the surface of the river for a pleasant afternoon punt, but instead was a full body immersion into the choppy lives of Ali and Jack. The performances by Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga were powerful and delivered far beyond what we could have imagined. Uh, Imogen Wegman says, I've just been to see A Star is Born and I have some feelings. After listening to previous feedback on the show, I have to throw in my two cents worth on the theme that I've heard a few times regarding the magnitude of Ali's transformation. As Ali ascends, Jack sees her betraying her integrity, but she dives into pop with flashy dancing and glitter galore. I haven't seen the film. Am I giving something else, giving something away here? I don't think so. I mean, just stomp on me or, you know, Robin, just kind of like cut me off if I'm sort of like doing anything a bit weird um, or giving anything away anyway. Um, uh, he thinks that the real Ali is the one who sings in the middle of a car park or when awkwardly heaved out on stage without warning. And because he thinks that, we are told to think it as well. But from her first performance in the bar, she shows that her true style is all an OTT affair. As her career progresses, that style is released from a cage built out of rejection and insecurity. The film suffers here from a sense of timelessness. Really do we know how much time has passed or at what speed change is occurring what I found most heartbreaking is that what he is fighting for what he sees her as a professional integrity may not even be a true reflection of who she is and we are shown that right from the very start thank you Imogen and uh, finally this is from uh, Lorna who says uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this film from start to finish. So much has been said about why it's so good that I don't need to repeat it. However, in light of last week's discussion about the power dynamic between the two main characters, there's one further issue with the narrative which I found troubling. As much as I believed in the chemistry between Ali and Jack, I was disappointed that Ali's character seemed to be derived from a trope in which female leads are endlessly patient and exist in order to accommodate and fix the failings of their male counterparts. I would have preferred a story in which Ali was allowed to be both good and bad like women are. A love story about two fully formed characters battling their way through the messy complexity of life would have been even more powerful. You got a comment on that? I think, uh, to go back to the first email, I think what's important is that A Star is Born is also the Lady Gaga story in a way, in a way that the 1954 version is the Judy Garland story. And so I think a lot of her character's journey throughout the film in terms of the the music that she's making, is it authentic, is it inauthentic? It's very much about Lady Gaga's career as well, as, as she went from these very strong pop bangers, I guess you would say that, to uh, the Joanne album, which was all about being authentic and putting on that cowboy hat and being true to herself. So I think... That explains a lot of the character to me, at least. 
Great. Thank you very much. It's Clarice Lochry and Sanjeev Bhaskar in for Simon and Mark on Five Live. Uh, 38 years after it first came out, Nine to Five is being re-released. And I've been talking to Jane Fonda, who stars in the film with Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton, of course. We'll hear from Jane after this clip, featuring her as Judy Burnley with Lily Tomlin as Violet Newstead. Judy? Okay, now, we're on the 12th floor. Above us is the executive suite where the president, Mr. Hinkle, is and the chairman of the board. Come on, 12. Oh, it sounds so big. It is. I've been here 12 years. I've never even seen the chairman of the board. 12 years? All I've done is be a housewife. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted to ask you about my salary. I don't think I That's can That's a very on... touchy subject around here. You'll have to take that up with our boss, Mr. Hart. Oh, I'm sorry. It's all so new. All right, don't worry. You're going to get the hang of it. Then you'll really be sorry. (laughs) Well, welcome to the front lines. That was a clip from 9 to 5, and we're delighted to be joined by one of its stars and producers, Jane Fonda. Jane, welcome. Thank you. Um, Would you just set up the film for us? It focuses on three women in particular, played by myself, Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton, who work in an office and uh, are treated not so well. There's sexual harassment, there is men being promoted past us. Uh, For example, Lily trains men and then turns out that they are promoted and she's not and things like that. The issues that women in offices were dealing with at that time, we filmed it at the end of the 1970s. And it's a comedy, and we end up devising a plan to take over the office, and it's very funny and very successful. And it made a big difference for women office workers in the United States at the time. It's interesting that, you, you know, given that it was when it was made, and you just said that you were kind of highlighting issues that were around at the time, you know, a lot of those issues are still around in offices, aren't they? Well, uh, yes, they are. Men are still promoted past women. There is still sexual harassment. Um, but there are things that are even worse now. For example, many of the workers are hired by another company and then subcontracted to the main company. So if there's a problem, like a woman gets fired because she's pregnant or there is wage theft or sexual harassment or whatever... You don't have any place to go to raise the issue and get it corrected because the boss isn't really your boss. You're employed by another company. And then because now there is the Internet, social media, digital, they give you a computer and a phone. They can access everybody you call, everything you do. There's no privacy whatsoever. And um, we're hoping to do a sequel, and the writers are now focusing on the realities of today's office work, and it's pretty bad. I'd like to come back to uh, the sequel uh, a bit later. I worked in offices for 10 years before I started acting and writing, and that would have been through the 90s mainly. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of the things that are, uh, are in 9 to 5, I kind of recognise from the environment that I was in. Mm-hmm. And what struck me as one of the many things that are interesting in, in this fun film was that the three main protagonists define different women at different stages of their life. There's a, a divorcee, there's a, um, a woman who's, who's training the people who are promoted above her, the men that are promoted above her, and, uh, and a happily married woman who's just judged by her image and stuff. Was that a very conscious decision at that time to, 
represent women in that way? Or your main protagonists, at least? Yes, well, because I knew that I wanted to to get Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton in the movie, and it was very important to me that they come on board. It took a year to convince them, by the way. <laughs> I don't know why, but it was very <laughs> difficult. So, you know, I wanted them to have the better parts. Dolly had never done a movie, and Dolly is Dolly, so obviously you're going to put Dolly in the role of the woman who the boss is constantly chasing around. Um, so there's the sexual harassment part of it. Lily Tomlin seemed to be a, the right one to make a woman who's been there the longest, who has real seniority, real knowledge of how everything works, but she doesn't get promoted. And then I'm the newbie. I've, I have been married to a wealthy man. My character, Judy Burnley, has never worked in her life and has no idea what she's doing, and she shows up, and the Lily Tomlin character, Violet, takes her under her arm and kind of teaches her the rope, but I'm, I'm very, very naive and don't really know what I'm doing. So I don't know how to work the Xerox machine, and I don't type very well, those kinds of things. What was the uh, original spark? for the idea, which came from you. Was there, was there a moment? Was there something that you saw? I became friends with a woman named Karen Nussbaum during the, uh, the Vietnam War. We participated together in the anti-war movement, and her day job at the time she lived in Boston was organizing women office workers. And every time we would see each other, she would tell me stories about what they had to put up with. And eventually I said, well, I, I want to make a movie about this. So we started developing a script, and it was... A much darker comedy. But then one day, I I didn't know Lily Tomlin. And I one day I went and I saw her one-woman show. And I, I just fell in love with her. And, and I was so blown away by her talent. And I said to myself, I don't want to make a movie about secretaries unless she is in the movie. Because she's just too brilliant. And on my way home that night from the theater, this is a true story, I turned on the radio and Dolly Parton was singing and I could feel the hair standing up on the back of my neck. I thought, oh my Lord, now wouldn't she be an interesting secretary and wouldn't people want to come to see a movie where she was in for the first time? And uh, and so we had to kind of change the script and make it a broader comedy and... Um, Got a new writer and a director, the brilliant Colin Higgins, and uh, and the rest is history. It suddenly strikes me that, that casting Dolly Parton would have been a huge risk then. I mean, did you know she could act? It didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> she has such a powerful personality. She is such an engaging character. I mean, just her laugh makes you happy. And... Uh, I mean, the fact is that she can be herself, but I knew that she would be perfect whether whether she was a the kind of actor you mean when you say, is she an actor? Mm-hmm. doesn't really matter. She's a personality. <laughs> and there's a lot of personalities who do very well in movies. You mentioned uh, Colin Higgins, who, who passed away uh, incredibly young and way yeah. too soon. Yes. Um, how did you come to him and what did he bring to the project? Oh, goodness, he brought everything. Um in, in my year-long effort to convince uh, Dolly and Lily to do the movie, I was having to spend a lot of time with their manager, Sandy Gallen. They both have the same manager. He has also passed subsequently. And it was he who suggested Colin Higgins. 
And, you know, Colin was a writer and director, so he wrote and, and directed it, and we just loved him. So to kind of to help him understand what it was that I wanted to convey, um, there was an organization. It was called 9 to 5, the National Association of Women Office Workers. And I was an activist within that organization. I knew the leadership. And I said, Can't, I want to bring Colin Higgins to Cleveland, where the organization was Cleveland, Ohio, where the organization was based. Can you get together 30 or 40 secretaries of different ages, different races, different, you know, big, they they have to be in big businesses like banks and hospitals and insurance companies and, and let them sit in a circle and have him ask them questions and have them tell their stories. And so that did happen. And I brought him to Cleveland and they went around in a circle and everybody kind of told their stories. And then, because, you know, Colin was a genius, and then he said, do any of you fantasize what you'd like to do to your boss? And the roof came off. <laughs> and the things that they told us were just, some of them we couldn't even use. I mean, one said... What, what, what couldn't you use? She, 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 we didn't use this one, that she wanted to cut the boss up into tiny pieces oh. and put him through a grinder and then put him in a coffee drip machine and add water and have him drip out his coffee. I mean, it That's was... That's a lot of detail. A lot of detail, yeah. But it was just, it was the most brilliant thing to think of. And that's where the fantasies come from. One of the things that, again, that struck me about the film, actually, I mean, it's got just the best beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, when the song starts, you Mm -hmm. kind of know that you're in for a fun time. Yeah. And is it right that that Dolly Parton came up with the song while you were We were shooting, and one morning she came in. You know, she has nails that are about four inches long. And uh, she came in one morning, and she, she, she asked Lily, and I to listen. She said, I think I've come up with a song. And she used her nails like a washboard. You know, I can't do it because my nails aren't long enough. But she kept time with her by rubbing her nails together. And she started singing. And Lily and I looked at each other and we knew, oh boy, this not only will be a hit, this will become a movement anthem. Did you expect at that time that it would have the longevity that it has? Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's funny, and because, as you pointed out in the beginning, the issues are are still valid. Yeah. When you were filming it itself, was it, did it feel like a party? Were you having a good time? Yeah. Was it? It was a you party. You were producing as well, because there's that pressure. Yes, it was. It was. Uh, I have a producing partner. I had a producing partner, Bruce Gilbert, um, and it was like a party. We all got along really well, and there was a lot of laughter. You know, for example, you know, Dolly had never made a movie before. She showed up the first day, not knowing that she didn't have to, but she had memorized the entire script. (laughs) Elvis Presley did that on his first film as well, Love Me Tender. Really? Yeah, turned up, knew everybody else's lines. (laughs) (laughs) This is part of a... 9 to 5 is is showing as part of a a BFI season of of comedies, but also of your films Uh as well uh, through to the end of the year. I've got a list of some of the films. The first film of yours I actually went to, to the cinema to see was the China Syndrome. Mm-hmm. Jack Lemmon it was a huge acting hero of mine, so yeah, I went to see everything yeah. uh, that he was in. And and then, was it a couple of weeks later that Three Mile Island happened? Two weeks. Two, Two weeks, weeks later. later, Three Mile Island happened, and people had to see the film to try to understand what it was that it had happened. And so, the, you know, the film did, did very well, and the film changed a lot of people's uh, minds about nuclear energy. 
Well, it made me the smart kid in the playground because I knew exactly what was going on. So <laughs> I came across as much more intelligent than I actually am. Um, but looking at the list of films that they've got in the season, I mean, it is like a um, Jane Fonda Greatest Hits, Volume 1. <laughs> I was just wondering, with, across these, Barefoot in the Park, Barbarella, The Shoot Horses, Clute, uh, Julia Coming Home, and On Golden Pond, as you mentioned, is there one that stands out for you that's, you're either particularly proud of there's three yeah. on golden pond for a very personal reason well mm. first of all it's a wonderful film it is yeah. that was beloved globally my father died five months after and so it was very special i knew that he was ill and that this would be his last movie for which he won his only oscar <laughs> and uh it was it was a magical experience but also clute what for which I won my first Oscar. Clute is a perfect film, I think, on every level. It's just the direction, the cinematography, the music. It's a just very, very fine quality movie. And then the third one is uh, Coming Home, which is the first movie that I was involved in conceiving of and producing um, because I had spent three years working with Vietnam veterans and active duty soldiers, so it meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's a marvellous film, it yes. still holds up. Yes. You're utterly unique, of course, uh, because I can't think of anyone else who's won two Oscars, had death threats and an FBI file on them. Uh, so <laughs> I'm sure I, it's happened. <laughs> and one of the best keep fe- selling videos of all time. Yes. There's nobody that covers all of those words. <laughs> so, uh, you know, with high expectation, can I ask what's coming next? Uh, uh, Grace and Frankie, I think you've done another... Season? Yes, the fifth season, which we finished in June, is going to be released by Netflix the middle of January, and we begin our sixth season January 28th. That's great. Which I'm very happy about. And the 9 to 5 sequel, what can you tell us about that? Well, it's being written, you know, I have had a lot of experience of hoping that to do something and having the script written and it didn't turn out. So, you know, I'm not getting my hopes up too high, but it would be wonderful if it could be done. Have you spent a year convincing Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton? No, this time everybody was on board. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jane Fonda, it's been an absolute honour. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that was the legend that is Jane Fonda. Now, as you mentioned the 95 sequel, I'm just putting it out there to you guys. Um, What do you think the, the sequel should be called Zero Hours Contract, 8 till 6. Don't do Wednesdays. Uh, email mayo at bbc.co.uk, text 85058, or uh, contact us on Facebook and on Twitter at Wittertainment. So uh, Jane Fonda, 9 to 5, re-released in cinemas on November the 16th. Clarice, you've um, re-watched it. What did you think? Yeah, so I, I want to bring up an article that was published about a week ago And I I will preface this by saying that it was written by a man, but it was claiming that it was ridiculous to call 9 to 5 a classic feminist comedy. And that left me feeling very frustrated because it's just such a misunderstanding of how we relate to cinema. And, you know, cinema is history and you can't strip films of that history and force them to exist in a vacuum where they remain eternally relevant. Because I think if they do the sequel, yes, they will have to drastically update it. But I think 9 to 5 is still absolutely a classic feminist comedy because it spoke it spoke so much to where feminism was at that period, which was 1980, and so many women in joining the workforce in record numbers. And they were turning up and, you know, what did they get? They got 
inequality in pay, sexual harassment, male colleagues getting promoted in front of them despite, you know, any inexperience. And so the film is responding to that. And that's why it meant so much. And that's why I think it can still mean so much, because obviously not a huge amount has changed. Mm. And so I, I understand that the plot is, you know, it's very exaggerated, the idea of dealing with your sexist boss by kidnapping him and holding him to ransom, basically. And well, It's clearly a satire, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it's kind of, uh, that's what it's meant to be. And they have these, you know, outrageous fantasy sequences. So, you know, Jane Fonda's character and Lily Thomas' character and Dolly Parton's character will daydream about him being hunted down like an animal or getting a taste of his own medicine. But I think that spoke to real frustrations of women having to watch these men at the top that could act however they liked and there was nothing that they can do about it. And so the extremity of the film reflects the extremity of the frustrations of feeling a complete lack of agency in in their lives. And I think you see that also in almost the wider culture of the 1980s because it was all about the giant shoulder pads and the giant hair. And I have to say, for me... My go-to power office lady film is actually Working Girl because of how much I you, love you have Melanie. A power office lady. Power office lady, lady film. film. Power <laughs> power lady office film. Sorry, power lady office film. My go-to power lady office film is Working Girl because of Melanie Griffith and Joan Cusack in that just giant beautiful monstrosity monstrosity hair. Um, but I think. You know, as well to see all those women come together, that's another really important thing about 9 to 5 because, you know, women are constantly pitted against each other, especially in the workplace. And so to see a film in which, you know, even though they initially judge each other, they all judge Dolly Parton's character because they think she's sleeping with the boss. But when they actually sit down and they talk to each other, they find they have all this stuff in common. And so I think, yeah, it's a classic feminist comedy. I can't can't understand how anyone could not, recognize it as a feminist statement of some kind i mean mm. not i mean apart from someone who's threatened by that phrase possibly but i thought what was really interesting looking back on it because i think it, you know it has dated in terms of some of the humor and maybe some of the pace and i'm not sure whether those fantasy sequences quite work within the film but um you know the the women in the film are uh, are incredibly well represented in terms of... So I worked in offices for about 10 years and in, in very patriarchal kind of companies. And, you know, the three lead characters are... There's a, there's a secretary who's kind of treated uh, much like a kind of, you know, uh, 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 a sex object. And then you've got uh, Jane Fonda's character who's, who's divorced. Um, uh, Dolly Parton's character is happily married. And uh, Lily Tomlin's character is a single mother within this and then you've got a woman in it as well who is kind of siding with their boss who's kind of like you know uh helping him along being his stooge looking for his kind of favor and 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 i thought that was really a a very healthy and broad representation of women without kind of like us being directed to hate any of them or any anything like that and also the kind of utopian ideal of a workplace that these women are working towards which was kind of utopian in terms of uh, obviously about female representation, but also about disability and also about race. I, I thought, well, that's, that's kind of what we're still looking for now. I mean, that utopia hasn't changed. I mean, it was, and that's 1980, and this is kind of, you know, 2018. So I thought all of those things were highly relevant in it. And um, I've, been, I've been working on a documentary recently for, for, for the BBC um, and, and looking at icons. And one of those things about all those activist icons uh, 
whether it would be about race, whether it be about feminism, whether it be about disability, is kind of you know how how you know how big the strides they made then, and how little the strides have been since. You know, they they were all in the twentieth century, and these huge strides like votes for women, things like that, were happening. Um, but in terms of the twenty first century, it seems like pigeon steps. Mm, and that's the interesting thing about nine to five is is all the things they are dealing with have really not changed. I mean, there's there's minor things that maybe don't quite ring true today, but the majority of it and what they're fighting against is, you know, you could have that same plot today. You would have to change certain things about it, but the same story could apply to today. And that's the sad thing about it, I guess. That's the sad part of watching 9 to 5. As fun as it is, is you go, oh, this is 1980, but it's also still today. So in 1980, you being part of the Goosebumps generation, um, did you think it was funny? I mean, it's been it's been billed as a comedy. I mean, I was I was not alive in 1980, so I I can't attest to how funny it was in 1980. But mm. I think it's still funny now. Absolutely, I think it. The thing with Nine to Five is that it's uh, one of those films that is very much a product of its time, and so certain some of the jokes you watch and you go, okay, well that's a that's a 1980s joke. And that would have been funny then, but maybe not so much now. But then there, I think there are still things about it which are eternal. And Dolly Parton will always be fabulous and funny. And the song is also timeless. It's great. The other person that I, I would want to shout out to, actually, uh, is Dabney Coleman, who plays the boss. Because I thought he was I thought he was really, really good because he plays that character without seeking sympathy, which is sometimes a tricky thing to do in a comedy. And yet he's really funny. He's really got those kind of, you know, the physical comedy stuff. He's got down the looks, the turns. Um, I thought he was really, really great. And it's something that I, I said to Jane Fonda as we were leaving. I kind of said, you know, how good he was. And she said, she said, listen, he was so good. I then cast him as my husband in on Golden Pond, which is obviously a completely different genre, etc. Um but yeah, I thought it was great. And also on a really personal level, when we finished the interview, because she is an icon, is uh, she said, thank you very much. You're really smart. Oh. Does that count for any? I, th- I think it counts for something. Yeah. Yeah. Right, That's you take away and you put it in your special diary. Thank you very much. Um, uh, still to come, we've got another hour of film conversation, of course, including these reviews, Clarice. The Guilty, Bohemian Rhapsody, Possum, Bad Reputation, The Hate You Give, An Evening with Beverly Laughlin and Utoya, July 22nd. We've got all of that and you can still get in touch. Email mayo at bbc.co.uk or text 85058. If you missed my chat with Jane Fonda... <sighs> That's no, all right. It'll be on the podcast, which will be available after the show. Now, um, before the news, I did um, uh, ask uh, what the 9 to 5 sequel should be, because Jane Fonda mentioned that uh, they are uh, in the midst of script development on it. And um, and lo and behold, that's what I love about this show. Great listeners. Great parishioners. This is from Tina and Joe. Hello, Sanjeev and Clarice. We are listening live for the first time in ages normally download, download the podcast, on the drive from Newport to Telford. Glad, yep, got the picture. We are able to do so today as we recently left our nine-to-five jobs oh. to, to work on flexible hours with the civil service. Therefore, we think nine-to-five sequels should be called Flexi Time. We've even come up with a, a new, with new lyrics for the song. Great show, both. Thanks, Tina and Joe. I thought you might send us the lyrics. Yeah, but where are the lyrics? I, Please. Just, we just got, I mean, it sort of... it. You can... Working flexi time. 
Mm-hmm. What a mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. to variably make a yeah. living. <laughs> Tina and Joe, I hope yours is better than that. I'm sure it I'm sorry. Is. I said no, don't apologise. At least you had a stab. You put your head above the parapet. Um, So on to another film. And the Queen biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody, is out this week. Lots of you you have seen it. And we'll hear your thoughts shortly. But first, Clarice. Yeah, so I feel like lots of people will disagree with this. But there are two versions of Queen in my head. There is the, the true rock god revolutionary band version of Queen, you know, the band that did the incredible Live Aid performance in 1985, that wrote Killer Queen, that were in the I Want to Break Free video, that were able to shift genres, you know, so fluidly just through that one rule of, you know, entertain the audience. And then there is the second Queen, which is the Queen that you yell down the microphone at karaoke and it's quite fun but it's it's a bit cheesy it's a bit superficial it's a little bit messy and bohemian rhapsody is very much that second version of queen it is all spirit and then no soul which i can see being enough for some people but i think for me if you're trying to tell the story of a real band of the real queen then it is just far too hollow and i know that you know there's been this very troubled production history with the film that's been very well publicized from Sasha Baron Cohen dropping out of the film due to disagreements with the band to the hiring of uh, Brian Singer, which was controversial due to the allegations against him. Also, his involvement was further complicated when he was fired off set due to unreliable behavior and Dexter Fletcher had to step in, although due to DGA, uh, DGA guidelines, uh, Brian Singer is still the officially the sole director But I have to say this film doesn't scream to me troubled production. I think there aren't any weird editing errors or or sort of weird gaps in time. I think my issues with it stem more from just the vision of the film and, and what it was trying to do. And it feels very much like on the one hand, it is trying to be the greatest greatest hits history of Queen And anything that is the darkest loads is very clumsily and hastily dealt with. It doesn't want to engage with anything that is too emotionally difficult or too complicated. And also it has this weird insistence on including the full catalogue of Queen. And so to the point that, and I should point out everything is lip synced in this song, so there's no live performances. But so it gets to the point when you get to this Live Aid performance. And although it is brilliantly shot... And I think all the live performances are brilliantly shot. There's a great energy to them. But that Live Aid performance at the end has maybe five songs in it. And it felt almost like they got to the end and they went, right, what will be missed? Oh, Radio Gaga. We have to make sure we get Radio Gaga. Otherwise, people will be upset. And then when you get to the musical turning points in the band's history, like We Will Rock You or Bohemian Rhapsody, you get these very strange little backstories. And so we have the clip put one here and um just turn down the volume if you're listening to this loudly i just want to warn you Galileo! Galileo Picaro! how was that higher can you go a bit higher if i go any higher only dogs will hear me try Galileo! Galileo Picaro! higher jesus how many more galileos do you want one more one more one more. Again. Go on. Roll the track. Who even is Galileo? Are we done? That's it. He loves you. 
I'm imagining uh, in a large room somewhere in London, there is a, a, a figure that is backed up against a wall surrounded by corgis. Just, Just right now. Yapping. <laughs> yapping away, looking menacing. Yeah, so apologies for that, but it's a good representation of the film. And so you have these scenes where, you know, it will be the band. So you've got Freddie Mercury played by Rami Malek, Brian May played by Gwilym Lee. You've got Roger Taylor played by Ben Hardy, John Deacon played by Joseph Mazzello. And they'll all argue amongst each other for five minutes about, should we do this song? Oh, it's very different from what we've done before. And then someone says... Oh, but we have to do it because that's Queen. And so then they do it and it becomes a huge success. And it's very, it's this very wink nudge attitude. There is this one scene um, with Mike Myers, who turns up as an EMI executive. And he's complaining about how no one will want to listen to a six minute Bohemian Rhapsody. And then he drops a Wayne's World reference, which to me, it's too much. You <laughs> cannot do that. It's ridiculous. It crosses a line for me. And so the problem with this film, I think, at its very core, is that it wants to be this fun skip through Queen's discography, but it also wants to be the Freddie Mercury biopic. It wants to be the definitive one. It's very much from his perspective, as I guess it would be if you're making a film about Queen, but he is so terribly underserved here. And it's such a shame because Rami Malek is so good in this. And he nails, you know, the stage presence and the theatricality, but I think he also bring something a little quieter to the more pensive moments, which just really needed in this film. And it just, I feel sad because I feel like if he had been given better material, if this had been a better film, we would be talking about Oscars here because that's how good this performance is. And, you know, I think as well, the problem is he's just he's just not given enough to do. And Freddie Mercury was such an incredible and fascinating and complex person. And, you know, Nothing here is really explored to its fullest. And, you know, for example, I know everyone was very worried about how his sexuality would be depicted here because I know he was a very private person. So it's not like we have any sort of definitive version of that story we can tell. Some people would describe him as gay. Some people would describe him as, as bisexual. I think the film does leave it undefined, but it focuses a lot on his relationship with Mary Austin, played by Lucy Boynton, who he wrote Love of My Life about. And... But he did also have a relationship near the end of his life with um, Jim Hutton, who's played here by Aaron McCusker, which is left as this epilogue that we never really get to see. And so I think it's a shame for me to leave this whole chapter of his life just untold. And so that is the difficulty of the film for me is that you just you can't be the fun like queen movie. Yeah, slap clap. And but sorry, stomp clap, not slap clap. Stop you can clap. do whatever you like. <laughs> That's my new queen song, slap, clap. Um, but, you know, it can't be that and it also can't be the definitive Freddy story and it's really not doing the latter any justice. See, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I saw it uh, yesterday, actually, so it's still pretty fresh in my mind. And I think it is... See, I, I loved Queen and I thought, you know, it was fantastic, great band and I'm old enough, because I am old, uh, to remember Live Aid and that performance at Live Aid, which was absolutely definitive for that day and for that time and it also kind of rejuvenated their career actually in terms of becoming a stadium band after that and and they were fantastic it, you know I remember it really well being at home it was a hot day and they came on and it was just the way he worked with the audience and stuff was amazing and also Dexter Fletcher's a friend of mine and I really like his work as well 
And but I think the film is a series of prologues and epilogues, and you know there are things that are touched upon at the very beginning of the film. Um, you know, uh, Freddie Mercury is seen working as a baggage handler, and one of his co-workers calls him the p-word, and his response is to say, "I'm not from Pakistan," and that is it. And you kind of go, "You that doesn't deal with what element of racism would have been around at that time." Um, Freddie Mercury and his family moved into West London in the area that I. Uh, uh, grew up in as well. So I know the area really well. I know what it was like, uh, particularly in the 70s. None of that was touched upon. Um, And, you know, you mentioned his sexuality. We don't really kind of get a sense of, you know, how that came to be. How did that, you know, uh, um, make him or how did he make it? it, That's sort of, you know, a a prologue to something that's not explained. Um, Even when he gets ill uh, with AIDS. It happens very quickly. And again, that's not really explored either. And uh, his flamboyance and excess is not really explored. And so in the end, see, I wasn't sure in the end whether they were trying to make a film about Freddie Mercury, a film about Queen or a film about the song Bohemian Rhapsody. And in the end, it was kind of neither one of those. And it felt like a kind of, albeit entertaining, trailer for a another film it felt like a pg-13 trailer for a kind of you know a 15 certificate film that's going to come out later and it's frustrating because those things you mentioned you see almost like the gems of what would be a good freddie mercury movie if you picked up on his sexuality if you picked up on his upbringing if you actually explored those things like i could watch that movie and imagine a freddie mercury biopic with rami malek in the role that would have been incredible if it actually you know, sincerely attempted to explore who he was because I don't know a huge amount about Freddie Mercury and I was hoping to watch this film and learn who he was and I walked away with no better picture, really. No, well, I've, got, I've kind of, you know, lots of interviews with his family and, you know, one of the things that they said was that at home he was completely different. At home he was just, you know, normal Freddie, you know, at home and all those personas thing, things were part of the business and that kind of disparity would have been interesting to kind of look at as would have been the relationship with his family i mean we see them a couple of times but it's not really explored um this is from uh, owen from dublin owen davis who says being just 21 i unfortunately missed out on the sensation that was queen and never got to experience what must have been the sheer excitement of a new queen album being released however through a mixture of parents with good taste in music and sites like youtube at my fingertips i can now confidently say that if the only sounds i heard for the rest of my life were queen songs it would be a good life bohemian rhapsody is a fantastic film which beautifully chronicles the life and career of one of the greatest performers in history perhaps the film's greatest achievement is the way in which it takes the most enigmatic superstar the world has seen and somehow manages to completely humanize him as the film went on i grew to dislike mercury just as much as his bandmates and fell for his redemption story just as hard i went on the journey filmmakers wanted me to wanted me to and loved every minute Rami Malek gives the performance of a lifetime and no movie about Queen could ever possibly have a bad soundtrack but the best this film has to offer comes at its conclusion um, this is from uh, Dominic Dominic Varney who says after reading the initial reviews on top of the knowledge of Sasha Baron Cohen's and Brian Singer's departures due to creative differences and other reasons I had an increasing number of anxieties about the film which I tried to swipe away which were sadly confirmed upon viewing it's exactly the film that Baron Cohen didn't want to make it's 
on the nose, it's bland, it's very PG-13 for a film about Freddie Mercury. It glosses over the major talking points of Queen's journey and Mercury's life. The film's direction is awkward, cringy and slightly boring. Most scenes feel creaky, awkward and needing some sort of cinematic lubrication. Nothing flows as smoothly as it should and there's pockets of empty air in each moment. It's as if the actors are remembering their lines a fraction too late. And this is from Alison who says, I can honestly say I don't know if I loved or hated it. There were many moments in the film when the songs didn't really seem to fit the years. Brian, Roger and John never seemed to go anywhere on their own and Freddie's wig at the beginning was frightful. During the first half, Rami Malek just wasn't convincing as Freddie. It was an actor playing the role. However, he gradually grew into the role as Freddie became more and more vulnerable and by the Live Aid set was amazing. Gwilym Lee was a Brian May clone and Alan Leach was very credible as Paul Prenter. So the timings and story were sketchy and scrappy but the music was great and the cats abundant and beautiful. It did make me smile in places and yes, a tear did roll down my cheek at times but that was a music thing. Love of my life every time. Did I love it? I still can't make up my mind. Will I be going to see it again? Definitely. And that's Alison. The, the, I'd say the um, performances are actually uniformly good. I mean, Gwilym Lee, I mean, I've met Brian May a couple of times and Gwilym is, is absolutely spot on. It's an uncanny kind of, you know, capturing of, uh, of what Brian May's like. But yeah, overall, I thought the performances were all pretty good. Rami Malek grew into his teeth, I think, as the film went on. Yeah, I think it was just a case of getting used to them because I'm so used to seeing Rami Malek not with those teeth that you have to readjust your image of him slightly so I think it's just a case whenever I feel like whenever any actor is wearing some quite extreme prosthetics it just takes you about 15 minutes of the film to settle into it and go okay this is what he looks like. We've got uh, other Bohemian Rhapsody um, uh, correspondents maybe we'll come to those in the uh, in the podcast uh, so we'll be we'll have more of Bo Rap as uh, the cool kids are calling it. Um, but uh, another new release. Yeah, shall I do The Guilty? Okay. So, um, so The Guilty works on very familiar terms. It's a real-time, single-location thriller. So think phone booth, buried, lock. You know, we know this format. And because of that, I think it's a very hard format to crack. So this is the debut from Danish director Gustav Müller, and it's the Danish entry for the best foreign language film at next year's Oscars. But I think this film does actually bring something new to the table, which is refreshing. And so it traps its protagonist, Asger Holm, played by Jacob, Jakob uh, Chedigan. I think that's the right pronunciation. Chedigan, I think. Chedigan. 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 In the confines of an office, he's a police officer uh, on emergency dispatch duty who is awaiting a court hearing for an unknown incident. And he gets a call from a woman named... Eben, who's played by Jessica Denage, who is kidnapped and she's in a car going to who knows where. And so the plot might it might sound similar to the 2013 film, The Call with Halle Berry, but I can assure everyone it is very different, so don't worry. But I think what this film does that is very interesting is that it's a new development on the rear window concept of the idea of having the protagonist in one location, there's a danger outside of the location that they feel impotent to intervene or to help in any way. And so there is this constant tension between the urgency of the events and then the mundanity of the call centre around him because most of the time they're dealing with very mild emergencies. It's a theft or an argument with a bouncer or someone falling off their bicycle. But, you know, in a single moment, everything could change. He's been handed this life or death situation, but the environment around him doesn't change. You know, it's still this harshly lit, drab office. The only aesthetic shortcut that's really taken is that 
he moves to a slightly smaller, slightly darker office, <laughs> which is you know, this visual metaphor of us tumbling down the rabbit hole with him. And, you know, I think the sound design as well, just the, you know, the stillness of the office versus the ominous happenings on the end of the other end of the line, the the rain patting on pattering on the windshield and the windshield wipers squeaking back and forth. And so it's it's such a such an effective contrast there. And so also I think you are asking so much of an actor here because the camera barely leaves his face. And I think to be able to pull off this kind of film, you have to have a huge amount of charisma. So you have to be like a Tom Hardy or a Colin Farrell. And I think what is so impressive about his performance is that not only can he pull off that sense of charisma, but he also keeps us at a distance. And so there's this mystery and there's this coldness to him and we're trying to figure it out. And, you know, there are also definite twists here. And I think the danger is that when you have a twist that is too obvious or a twist that's too outrageous, it might diminish the emotional impact. But here I think every twist serves the story. And that is to make us question ideas of responsibility and assumptions that we make about certain situations. And, you know, especially for a police officer who has to make these drastic decisions on minimal information. And so, you know, I think a, a real time single location thriller is a dangerous game to play. Some of them are great. Some of them feel very gimmicky, but The Guilty is very much on the great side. I, I, I agree with you. I thought it was really, really good. And uh, for a debut film, I thought it was really impressive. But the other thing that um, when I was uh, reading up about it was that uh, so it reminded me of I mean, you mentioned uh, Phone Booth and uh, The Caller. You know, there are other films that have kind of, you know, in that single person focused thing um but also films about hearing things where you don't get a picture it's the one that you have to make up so i was thinking of films like the conversation or lives of others you know there's there's a picture that's being built up by the person who is listening and uh, to do it in real time was really bold and um and as you say the the, the camera is on Jacob throughout and one of the things they did do with this uh, was that they had the actors who are phoning in who are playing the other characters in another room so they were doing that as live which a lot of the time you know when when you see someone on the phone to somebody it's usually a kind of uh, you know an assistant director it's an AD in the corner with the script and so you know I might be saying uh, hi police yeah yeah uh, I'm in trouble uh, okay uh, you you're going to have to stop crying because I can't make out what you're saying. Yeah, I'm really emotional at the moment. And they just, you know, they fill it in later and they do all that kind of stuff. But this, I think, really helped the fact that those phone calls were coming to him live and so he was responding live as well. And I think you can tell that in that sort of, uh, in the way that, that, that it kind of moves along. There's a kind of kinetic energy to it, mm. even though they're quite static. And the performance, actually, they bounce off each other, which is rare to see in phone dialogue scenes. Yeah, because the thing is, with with another actor on the phone, if they kind of pause for a second, you have a natural reaction to it. Whereas, mm. you know, if you're in, if you're, if there's a, it's an AD sitting <laughs> with a biscuit in one hand, and he yeah. stops, you just think, have you have you lost your place? Well, it's uh, aren't you supposed to say something? So I thought um, that was great. So yeah, thumbs up for uh, uh, for the guilty. What else we got? Mm, we have Possum, which is very much drawing from the palette of the British 1970s. So it's horror films, think Nicholas Rogue. It's public information films. It's shot in 35mm. The soundtrack is um, created by the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, who, you know, 
created stuff for Doctor Who and Quartermass and the Pit and also just the colour brown, you know, that very brownish yellow, which is the the official colour of the most grim, unglamorous parts of the 1970s. So it is a horror film. It's the debut of Matthew Holness, who he played Garth Marenghi in Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. That's probably where he's most familiar. I, lo- I loved that show. Which, yeah, and that it really draws on the parodies of, of 80s British horror tropes. But this isn't quite a parody and it's not even quite an homage. It's more that it uses the established language of these horror films to explore the idea of horror as a metaphor. And I think it does it very well. So you have Philip played by Sean Harris who comes home after an unnamed terrible incident and he's forced to stay with his cruel, grotesque uncle played by uh, Morris, played by Alan Armstrong, who just gives him a constant stream of verbal abuse. And so through those conversations, you start to learn about their past. You start to learn about why he acts that way. And the possum of the title is a thing. I won't say what it is to, to ruin it, but it's a thing that he must physically carry in leather hold So it's also, it's the physical thing, but it's also the emotional metaphor for his trauma. And so... As the film progresses, you start to see how the physical thing changes his behavior and his psychology. But then you also see, ah, that's the trauma changing his physical behavior and his psychology. And I think Sean Harris is is so perfectly cast here because, because he has that immediate intensity to him, even when he has a completely neutral expression. And he's so good in this film at just tensing his entire body up. So it feels like he's carrying a burden, even when he's not physically carrying the possum, the unknown thing. Um, and so I think all of that is so effective, but you have this slight issue where it's so studiously done and it's so carefully done and it's so thoughtfully done about about this this metaphor between the possum, the physical possum, and also the emotional trauma that in a way it it lessens the the actual horror, the scariness of it. And so it's more a film that you watch and go, oh, well, that's a very interesting artistic exercise, but you're not hiding under your covers. And I think even some of the emotional impact is lessened, so... Yeah, um, Sean Harris has got that ability to look both frightening and frightened at the same time, which is really a really interesting place to be. Yeah, the film's completely creepy, isn't it? I, th- I thought mm. it was. Uh, I thought it was great in that sense, and it's interesting that the Garth Marenghi kind of brigade have all kind of branched into films that have dealt with darkness in some way. Richard Ayade and uh, Alice Lowe, of course, as well. Um, this is from Jane Klein, who says, "Dear esteemed substitute teachers." Thanks for that. I'm waiting nervously for your review of Possum today, as it was my favourite film of Fright Fest this year. Jaws is not a film about a shark. Possum is not a film about a scary puppet. Instead, it's a story about what happens when you survive trauma, but only just. The central performance by Sean Harris is absolutely barnstorming. For me, it's the best film I've seen in some time. And this is from Bill McPherson, who says, I saw Possum at Fright Fest last month. Apart from Gaspar Noe's climax, it was the film I was looking most forward to. It certainly delivered in its photography, performance and even direction, but thematic it just wasn't there. I think Matthew Holness has made an interesting and really affecting film with Sean Harris, but it is perhaps despite the rather patched together plot, which may have made three excellent short films. Weirdly, the film it reminded me most of was David Cronenberg's Spider. Maybe Matt Holness conceived this idea after watching Spider eating a huge cheese sandwich and falling asleep. That's from Bill McPherson. It was based on a short story, I think, that uh, Matthew Holness had written. And again, it's a, it's a directorial debut. Again, I thought it was a really solid debut in terms of the images and the bleakness. I think all of that was captured uh, really quite well. 
It's time for TV Movie of the Week, and some of you have been guessing what Clarice will pick and uh, giving us your suggestions as well. This is from uh, Marie Winter, who says, I, I'll go for Villain. It almost succeeds in being the film it wants to be, and I think it's very much an underrated classic. Watership Down is horrific. I dislike Vertigo. Yes, I know this is heresy. I don't know why, but it might be down to all the eye makeup they use to make Jimmy Stewart look evil. I suppose Flash Gordon is always worth a watch too. Uh, Mark Gillen says, some great choices. Just watched Princess Bride with my daughter. She loved it. I always felt that it does end rather suddenly. Also, I've been listening to the soundtrack of Flash Gordon in the car with the same daughter. She didn't know that Queen wrote the actual soundtrack. So guess what? We're off to see the Queen film this weekend as a result. John Watson says, Dario Argento's incredibly underrated masterpiece, Inferno, is the one to watch this week, the second part of the Three Mothers trilogy. This is like the earlier Suspiria, a Maria Bava film turned up to 11, and like Suspiria, is the perfect combination of horror and giallo cinema. Uh, Wynne Weldon says, Gene Brody is my deathbed choice here, but I'd like to nominate a guilty pleasure in Deepwater Horizon, which is much better than I expected most will think. The event is the star vehicle, not the star. First rate. Richard Sloman says, Brian Blessed, Timothy Dalton, Max von Sydow, Queen, set design that looks like it was done by Blue Peter. Gotta be flush! Amazed this hasn't uh, had a remake starring The Rock yet. And Jen Cresswell says, with a week with both Flash Gordon and The Princess Bride, this would be a no-brainer. But I say the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, because it was because of this film that Maggie Smith was cast as Professor McGonagall. Clarice... What's your choice? I think because I'm so excited about the Suspiria remake coming out, it has to be Inferno, which, you know, is maybe, I feel like it's maybe not quite as consistently brilliant as the original Suspiria, which just in terms of keeping up that sense of atmosphere. But I think there are still so many standout moments in that film in Inferno. I love the scene in the lecture hall where our hero is being stared at by by a woman who just has a cat for some reason in the lecture hall. And she's looking at him and he's looking at her and the cat's looking at him. And it's just this completely magnetic three-way stare off. And it's just an incredible sequence. There you go. Um, so uh, when is that on and when? Oh, so that is on at 1.10 on Sunday on Film 4. That's your TV of the week. Is that AM or PM? Uh, AM, I believe. Is it? Yes. You sure? Yes, so stay up late. <laughs> <laughs> and um, TV movie so bad, it's bad. So we have uh, Gerard Sweeney who says, if there's a Transformers film on the list, it's pretty much a winner or loser, as the case may be. Scorpion King gets a mention for featuring some WWE guy, as if a wrestler could ever have a successful film career. Ian Johnston says, Transformers, Dark of the Moon. Third time lucky? No. More like Strike 3 for Michael Bay and co. And still they keep coming. Horrible stuff. Cat Day says Transformers, uh, D-O-T-M, as no one is calling it, inexplicably has four stars in this week's Radio Times. Oh, Andrew Collins, why? Why? Simon Belcher says, who saw the Rex Harrison musical and thought, I would like this more without the songs and with Eddie Murphy as the star. Doctor Doolittle is clearly the worst film. And Danny Thorne, Thorne says, at the risk of being ex excommunicated... At the risk of being excommunicated from the church, I quite like the mortal instruments. Clarice, I, so bad it's bad. And why is the Scorpion King on that list? Well, okay, the, I've only seen it once and I saw it when I was 12. But at the time I thought it was a masterpiece. I was obsessed with The Rock in that movie. I thought the Scorpion King in 2002 was the coolest person alive. So 
I will never put The Scorpion King down as a TV movie so bad it's bad. Can I just say it was described by the New York Times as like having several garbage cans clogged with stale pizza, lukewarm cola, soggy French fries and greasy ketchup stained napkins emptied over your head. Sure, I mean, that's one way to put it. Or you're just watching The Rock be extremely cool for a running time of two hours or however long it is. So I think I'll go, I'll go with Dr. Doolittle for the great crime of removing songs. The great crime of removing songs it is. And on to another new release. Yes, so The Hate You Give. And I'm very happy to be on the show when this film is coming out because I love to talk about teen movies. I think we always underestimate their importance because they come out, you know, at a time in your life when a little bit of guidance can make a world of difference. And to see a film like this that engages in real experiences, you know, it just makes me want to scream from the rooftops about how great it is. And I do kind of want to scream from the rooftops about the hate you give because it's a film that is just so honest about the stuff that we know that black teenagers, specifically in the USA, they have to deal with these things, they have to worry about these things, but the mainstream media so rarely acknowledges that. And so, for example, you have the opening scene where our hero star, played by Amanda Stenberg, has the talk, which for white teens, that has one meaning, that is the birds and the bees. But the talk, you know, for parents of black children is also the talk where you have to sit them down and tell them what to do and how to act if you're stopped by the police. And so the catalyst in this film is that Star's childhood friend, Khalil, played by by Algie Smith, is shot by a policeman when his car has been pulled over. And that is an image that is familiar and, and heartbreaking and enraging for the audience to see. And so what is so effective about this film is that it explores that wider conversation, but it also hones in on the personal experience. And so on one hand, you have you hear from an activist played by Issa Rae, who, in, and also from the point of view of a cop played by Common, who is, she, um, he is Star's uncle. And so you're seeing these different perspectives. And there's one scene where she sits down with her father and they deconstruct the title of the film, which stands for Thug Life, which was the group that Tupac Shakur founded. And they sit down and they deconstruct what that title means. And we have a clip of that scene. Trying to make some sense out of it. It's Thug Life. The hate you give little infants. F's everybody. I know what it stands for. What do you think it means? I think it's about us. Us who? Black people. Poor people, everybody at the bottom. Are you on it? Pac was trying to school us on how the system's designed against us. Why else you think so many people in our neighborhood deal? They need the money. Yeah. And they no real jobs around here. So they fall into the trap. Can I just tell you that... Uh... Thug, Indian word, oh. comes from India. Oh, well, they don't discuss that. No, oh. no, there's no I point where they say, Thug, <laughs> Indian. Yeah. They don't say it. <laughs> no, well, that can be one point against it. But, you know, they are having these direct conversations about discrimination and police brutality. But I think the mistake with this film is would be to assume that it has 
all the answers. Instead, it's reflecting the conversations that teenagers are either having or the conversations that they want to have and are maybe not having the opportunity to have those conversations. And, you know, it's about acknowledging a reality. And in this case, it's Star's reality. You know, someone who's having to process a traumatic event as a teenager while also learning about the power of her own voice because there are certain people who don't want her to speak out about it at all. There are people who want her to speak out in certain ways. And the the film makes a very big point of her learning that, you know, your voice is your own and you have to speak in the way that feels truthful to you. And I think that is an incredibly powerful message to give to teens. And the brilliance as well of the film is that it's not a one-issue film. It's reflecting so many different things that black teenagers are having to deal with. It's talking about code switching, you know, where you have to change the way that you talk or the way that you express yourself to fit into certain environments. And for Star, she basically has to cleave her identity in two because she's splitting her life up between her home in Garden Heights, which is a working class majority black neighborhood, and her school, which is a wealthy majority white school. And she's ends up feeling like she doesn't belong in either world. And so it's dealing with that. It's also dealing with attitudes to mixed race relationships. You know, she has a white boyfriend played by KJ Apa. She's dealing with white friends who act black but won't actually stand by her when she needs them. And she's also worrying about prom, what she's going to wear to prom and what she's going to put on her Tumblr page. And so it's all about putting that together, all of that together in one experience and to put that into the teenage experience, which is so rare for a mainstream film. And also the performances are fantastic from Russell Hornsby as a dad, Regina Hall as the mother, and then Amanda Stenberg, who is such a leader for her community, like outside of this film and for her generation, such a voice for her generation. And I think that really bleeds into the character. And so I think this is a film that just speaks so directly and so intelligently to teens. And I think that is a thing to treasure. Uh, This is from Amelia. Uh, from Glasgow, who says, The Hate You Give is a really important film and I would urge everyone to go and see it. My partner and I both felt that it gave a much more rounded view of racism in America than The Black Klansman did. We both loved the Spike Lee film, but I felt it gave a one-sided portrayal of the issues of race in the States. The experiences of racism shown through the innocent eyes of a teenager who's trying to fit in and find her identity at home and at school makes for a really raw and emotional portrayal of the issues that black people and people of other races still face every day. The portrayal of a father having the talk, as you just mentioned as well, with his children, no talk I've ever had to have with my parents about what to do to stay safe from the people that are meant to protect us and how to appear absolutely not threatening because, as they say in the film, how can we be unarmed if they see our blackness as the weapon, is just heartbreaking. The movie and Amanda Stenberg's fantastic performance demonstrated a complex, emotional, raw, but also realistic story of racism today. This is the second mainstream media film I've seen uh, this year, which shines a light on issues we are still facing as a society through the eyes of young people who are trying to make sense of it all. And just like Love, Simon had a massive impact in and outside of the LGBT community. I hope that Thug does too. Uh, thank you for that, Amelia. And this is from uh, Nick Atkinson, who says, The world of cine occasionally gives a secret preview screening where you have no idea what you're seeing until the title tile appears. The latest of these was The Hate You Give, which prompted many walkouts. However, in my view, those that did leave missed out. 
I had never heard of the book or was aware a film was on its way and was slightly concerned which way the film was going after the first 10 minutes when it appeared to be another standard teen girl love angst offering. However, after this initial section, it moved into a story which I was not expecting and what a will executed story it was. You could easily bracket it as a roller coaster of a film with laughs, tragedy, tension all thrown in, but it was the relevance to the current issues. Beg your pardon, relevance to the current increase in racial tension that really got to me. It is also the first film I've seen, uh, been to for a long time, in which one scene towards the end of the film resulted in a very audible intake of breath for many of the filmgoers in the screening, which can only be down to how engrossed we all were. The main characters were well played out, and Amanda Stenberg was a revelation in the lead role, switching between the character traits with ease. I believe she will go on to great things in the future. I don't think this film will get the attention it deserves, but I would encourage everyone to make the effort to see it. Thank you for that, Nick. It kind of echoes what you were saying, I guess. That's good. That's good. Well, well done. <laughs> I'm not on my own here. Well done, you. Yeah, no, you're never on your own. You're never on your own. Good. No, but I, I think it's an important film. And I think even if it's not something you would, you know, choose to go see a teen movie, I think take a chance on it. I think, you know, outside of the the race issue, those are issues which all teenagers have. The, the, trying to fit in, having duality, having to, you know, a different kind of code uh, in terms of language or in terms of behaviour outside the home and inside the home. I think those are all roots in, I would have thought, to understanding the film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on to uh, Bad Reputation. Yes. So this is about one of my personal favourite rockers, Joan Jett, who's best known for songs Bad Reputation, Crimson and Clover, I Love Rock and Roll, and for her first band, The Runaways. And... The reason I love her is that she is so tough and so fearless, but she seems genuine as well. There's no posturing to her attitude, which I just really appreciate that. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, she always seems like she can have fun. And I think this documentary by Kevin Kaslake really reflects well that side of her. You know, the editing is fast. It's scrappy. There are all these little clips and photographs from her life. And it really feels like she's speaking in her voice. Um, But I think, you know, the dominant image of her is of this revolutionary. She's revolutionary just by being herself and continuing to be herself, even when her career just faced roadblock after roadblock. She was 13 when she first wanted to play the guitar. She got her first guitar lesson. The teacher said, girls don't play rock and roll. And then she went to L.A. and formed the Runaways and... During her gigs, she had car batteries and beer cans thrown at her head. And so this is her talking about kind of processing that side of it. You know, it gets spit on. I mean, I just felt like I couldn't leave the stage. You know, I'd go off afterwards and cry just because I didn't get it. And then I'd feel better after I'd, you know, cried a little bit going, why? What's what's with that? People need to be so hateful because you're playing rock and roll you know some of the other girls got tired of it and I don't blame them it was just that to me felt like that's what I had to do tell me I can't do something and you'll make sure I'm going to be doing it you know that was the thing that she always found that way through and she was pioneer just not just for women in rock but for everybody because you know when she faced all these roadblocks what she started to do is she would sell albums out of the back of her Cadillac at gigs which was something that wasn't really done before and other musicians saw that and they started creating their own record labels they realized that they could take control of their own careers in that way and so I think it really expresses how well loved and how respected she was by 
just seeing who comes out to, to speak up for her. So you have Iggy Pop and Debbie Harry and Miley Cyrus, Kathleen Hanna, Michael J. Fox, who they co-starred together in Paul Schrader's Light of Day. And just to see all these people come out and support her because she in turn seems like such a supportive person. And there is an interesting focus in this documentary on that side of her, you know, how involved she ended up being in the Riot Girl movement in the 90s. She produced Bikini Girls, uh, Bikini Kills first album. And that stuff is all great. But I think the communal love here is almost too much that the documentary just becomes hagiography. And I think all the best biographical documentaries are driven by an intellectual intellectual curiosity, a desire to understand the person to uncover something about them and you know I know that Joan Jett is a very private person and it's not necessarily about uncovering some deep trauma but I found it ironic that the most illuminating thing in the whole documentary was something that Kristen Stewart said that played her in the movie The Runaways she said something about you know have her compulsive dedication that she is precious and gritty and girly and feminine and smart and that all comes from having to be a little self-protective. And I found that really interesting. I wanted to see that documentary, the Kristen Stewart documentary. And, you know, I think this documentary just suffers from not really going beyond that initial revolutionary rocker front. I mean, is is Joan Jett self-analytical within it? I mean, is this, did it come across like a cathartic process for her or is it simply just a biography which has got lots of good, sort of talking heads and vox pops. Yeah, not really, because, you know, she is such a private person. She doesn't really want to reveal that side of her. And I think no one really pushed to pushed her to reveal that side of herself here. So she obviously didn't feel the need to if no one was trying to get it out of her. That is bad reputation. And um, what can you say about an evening with Beverly Loughlin? Yeah, so I've spoken before on this show about my appreciation for The Greasy Strangler, which is by the same director, Jim Hosking. And it's very much the same world, which I would describe as kind of a John Waters early low budget film. So choppy and confrontational and uncomfortable, but with the sinister mundanity that was popularized by Twin Peaks, because, you know, a John Waters film is very joyous and celebratory. But this this film here and The Greasy Strangler is more about anxiety. He creates these very anxious worlds in which no person in them has any social skills whatsoever. And so I think they become manifestations of how we worry that we act in social situations. You know, when you're falling asleep and you're just thinking, oh, God, why did I do that? I'm such a monster. Like the characters are a representation of that worry. And I think this film plays more into that than The Greasy Strangler did, which was more just about being as gross as possible. Sorry, maybe there's something I just misunderstood. When you're falling asleep and you think, why did I do that? You know, when you're falling asleep and you're remembering something you did that day and, and oh, how I see. Okay. you acted. Well, I thought you, you know, something that you were doing at the time. Oh, no. Oh, sorry, okay. Sorry, That's I thought clarifying. that situation would be immediately familiar to everyone. The falling asleep moment and going, ah, I'm so Earlier on today, I did such, I was such a silly thing. That kind of. Yes. Oh, okay, gotcha. Sorry. Thank yes, you. I'm sorry, because I'm such an anxious person. That's like an everyday routine. <laughs> but, you know, so it plays into that more than the Greasy Strangler. And it just creates these outsider characters. You have Lulu, played by Aubrey Plaza, who escapes her miserable life with her cousin's cash box and a hired gunman, Colin, played by Jermaine Clement. And she's trying to go to the Morehouse Hotel to attend 
this evening with Beverly Laughlin, which she explains here. Listen, there's an event tomorrow night at the hotel. We're going to it, okay? An event? Do you remember the man in the plaid hat from the large man-shaped poster near the hotel reception? Mr. Beverly. Beverly's a woman's name. No, I don't think so. It is a Scottish woman's name. Beverly is a man's name. It's a very feminine name. No, it isn't, Colin. It's a very masculine name. I went to school with a girl called Beverly. No, Colin. Beverly is a man's name. Beverly is a woman's name. No, Colin. Beverly is a man's name. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Mmm. Yeah. This is so indulgent. I'm going to need to do some exercise after this. Can you please wipe your mouth? That's absolutely disgusting. That horrible sound you hear at the end um, are cheesy onion rings, just to clarify. <laughs> um, and and so she still pines after this Beverly Laughlin, after we learn that they have a little bit of a history together. And so the performances here are all very deliberately stilted. It's almost the imitation of bad acting. And... You know, in The Greasy Strangler, it was populated mainly by either kind of unknown actors or non-actors. But here, because Jim Hosking has had, you know, more resources, a greater reach, he has collected together all the greats of deadpan comedy. So Aubrey Plaza and Jermaine Clement and Craig Robertson and Matt Berry and Maria Bamford. And so all of that deadpan is essentially the representation of squishing all your emotions down as far as you can. And then occasionally in this film, those emotions suddenly burst out and they come out in these these weird bursts of anger over, over something so trivial, which I think is tends to be what happens when you are very emotionally stilted. You start yelling about the remote control or something. So I think this film understands awkwardness and social anxiety very well in that way. And what I really enjoyed as well is the idea that the awkwardness extends even into the production design because there are all these weird details. There'll be a spaghetti dinner with a fist-sized meatball. There'll be a spray foam cappuccino. There's a magazine called Horse Fun. There are these odd little quirks in the script where certain words will just be pluralized for no reason, like men's with guns and twins beds. And so this film is just a complete act of world building. And so I think I really enjoyed it, but I want to put that in the context that I am part of the very niche target audience that ever had a hope of being receptive to this film. So I would say, yes, I enjoyed it. But if you watch it and you hate it, I don't want to be responsible. You could say that about every review you ever do, surely. Yeah, but I feel like specifically this one, because I understand the film is very much for me and probably not most other people. I mean, it has got a cracking comedy cast. I mean, I'm a huge mm. Jermaine Clement fan, so I'm a huge Flight of the Concords fan. And so, I mean, does it fall into the kind of laugh out loud funny or are you kind of, you know, mulching it in your head and smiling on the inside? Yes, but again, it depends so much on what your sense of humour is. <laughs> Well, again, that covers every comedy that's ever... <laughs> I know. If you find social anxiety funny or, like, social awkwardness funny, then yes, but I don't think that's everyone. OK, that's an evening with Beverly Laughlin. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. And, Clarice, your movie of the week is... The Hate You Give. 
So that was the show this week. We packed quite a bit in, didn't we, Clarice? We kind of packed yeah. a bit in, but not all of it because we have one more film that we wanted to talk about. Yeah, so this is Utoya, July 22nd, which is about the 2011 Norway attacks um, in which a right-wing extremist first detonated a car bomb in Oslo in the government district and then travelled to the island of Utoya, which was hosting a youth summer camp and opened fire. Um, of course, it's the same subject as the Poor Greengrass film that came out earlier, 22nd of July, but this is a Norwegian film. It's directed by Eric Poppe, and it really focuses on the second attack in which 77 were killed, 99 were injured, and 300 had massive psychological trauma. And it is a real-time recreation of the attack, which in real life lasted 72 minutes. And it's done in one take, or at least it seems to be one take. There are some hidden cuts here and there. And the characters are fictional, but it's drawn heavily from the accounts of survivors. And in short... The whole point of this film is to create a realism so that we see through the perspective of the victims, which makes it an incredibly difficult film to watch. Um, so we're following a, a sort of protagonist, Kaya, who's played by Andrea Bunsen, who um, over the course of the attack becomes separated from her sister and is trying to follow her. Oh, sorry, trying to find her and... The camera here is acting very much as a first-person point of view. It reacts as a person one. It reacts as a person would. So, when a gunshot goes off, the cameraman will flinch. When the teenagers are trying to hide, the lens will be buried into the ground. And so, it's really trying to create this extreme empathy, and that is why it is so difficult to watch. And I have to say. I always wonder with these films what the right thing to do is because I personally feel very uncomfortable when we start making films about very recent tragedies because the emotions are still so raw for so many people. And I know everyone has very different opinions on this, um, but I always feel because in filmmaking there is always an element of fictionalization. It doesn't matter how closely you try to follow the truth, that will always happen and I think that puts us in danger of creating distance between us and the truth of the experience. And even though this film draws so much from real accounts, there are still moments that feel a little bit conventional. They feel like movie making, which even if those moments are true, it's about how they've been put together. You know, it's still a narrative, I guess. And so as much as I do feel uncomfortable about this film existing because of that level of realism, I do at least understand the motivations behind this film, a lot more than other films about recent tragedies, because this film really comes from a place of urgency to say, this happened, this happened, Norway, what are we going to do to stop it from happening again? And so the first time we see Kaya, she looks down the lens and she says, you'll never understand, just listen to me. And we found out that she's actually just talking on the phone, but I think you see there the, the agenda of the film has been set very early on. And, you know, the release in Norway has been controversial, but I think the film has at least made its point, which is to recenter the conversation on the victims and to always put their experiences first when we talk about, 
you know, when a nation processes these kinds of events. And like, I don't want to make this too much of a comparison review with the Paul Greengrass movie because... It's inevitable, though, given the timing. Yeah, but I always feel awkward making sort of these very strict comparisons because they're, they're two different films trying to achieve very different things. But what I did find very significant is that this film never mentions the terrorist name. He's only seen very briefly just once sort of in the corner of the shot while the Greengrass movie, it opens on him, it follows his arrest, it follows his trial. And the Norwegian media at the time was heavily criticizing for focusing so much on the terrorist and not the victims. And I think this film really has an element that is trying to look at how we process tragedy because we see early on in the film when the teenagers first hear about the attack, they go through all those same anxieties, and assumptions, you know, they react the usual way that everyone reacts. And I think... Mainly confusion, really. Yeah, confusion, and they're trying to figure out really quickly what's going on, and so they jump to certain places. And so I think that as well, then, to have the the fictionalised main character, because I think a lot of these films usually focus on one person as, like, the hero, and it's about heroism, which I'm not saying is the wrong thing to do, but I think this film very specifically looks at the bigger picture. So, I don't know. I feel very conflicted because I don't know whether this film, this kind of film should be made in the first place, but I think if we are going to tell these kinds of stories, I would rather the story be told this way, where it comes from a place of urgency and it has a very sort of a precise purpose in what it's trying to do. I suppose... Uh, thinking about it, as I haven't seen the Paul Greengrass one yet, uh, which I will do, but you know those uh, films about these kind of things where they try to understand what happened, it's usually trying to understand the mindset of the perpetrator because we assume that the victims are by and large innocents and so we, we kind of, there's a shorthand, we kind of get that. We get they were innocent, they didn't deserve it. A terrible tragedy but let's try to understand the perpetrator so this may not happen again and I wonder whether within that you know the difference between the Paul Greengrass film from what you're saying is if you're looking at the the perpetrator it's trying to understand what his motivation was and trying to break that down so we don't repeat that is we perhaps lose sense of the victim in all that and trying to understand what that trauma is so there's a shorthand to trauma which whereby we just go, it's really horrible and it's awful and it's sad and upsetting and it makes you cry, without perhaps embracing that a little more. And I think perhaps this film was trying to do that. Yeah, I think it's just important occasionally to try and have... You know, obviously I think the film isn't going to perfectly recreate that experience and watching that film, you know, you know exactly what it was like. But I think it is important for us occasionally at least to attempt to have that empathy and and to understand because I think it helps motivate us better to take action because, you know, we just have a better understanding of the horror of the experience. Mm. Um, This is uh, an email that came through from uh, Rachel Mason who says, Good morning, good afternoon, uh, Sanjeev and Clarice. I just wanted to say how lovely it is to listen to you. How lovely of you, Rachel, to say so. Isn't that nice? That's kind of really nice. nice. You didn't have to Thank say that. You. you did. As a colonial commoner in New Zealand, 
woken in the middle of the night, it's nice to listen to you live for a change. As a short-term listener of six years, I very rarely listen live due to the time zone differences. Understandable. If you get a chance, a WhatsApp or Sanjeev's equivalent to Rohan, Ed, Jules and Alex, who will all be listening to the podcast in the morning. Well, thank you, Rachel Mason. I now have to work out what my WhatsApp equivalent is. I suppose the Punjabi, which is Gidda. Oh, eh, kidna. So I'll do a kidna to Rohan, Ed, Jules and Alex. And also, uh, happy birthday to Rick Evely, who uh, tweeted me earlier today, who's a uh, loyal parishioner as well. Oh, happy um, birthday. Happy birthday, Rick. He's only 50. Be a child. Yeah, You're child. even less than that. Uh, so uh, what else have we got? We've got one other thing, haven't we? We've got uh, the horror yes, stuff. Yes, yes. So there's, I guess because it's Halloween, it would be sensible to have some horror films re-released into the cinema. And so we have quite a selection. Um, so we have three 4K restorations. We have two John Carpenters. We have They Live from 1988 and Prince of Darkness from 1987. And then we have The Evil Dead, Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead from 1981. And so I think They Live is obviously, it's a classic. And I think when I was talking earlier about horror films reflecting the time period and what we were concerned about at the time, I think They Live is another great example of that because it was such a direct response. And John Carpenter has said this, that he made this movie as a direct response to to Reagan and, and Reaganomics. And so I think in that, like I have to say, I think the film today maybe doesn't have the same potency at least for my generation because I think the millennial generation we've grown up very aware that advertising has corruptive powers and I think you know that's the reason that social influences have become so huge because like teenagers are on to the fact that big companies are trying to sell you things and so I think this idea of you know him putting the sunglasses on and suddenly he sees the truth is maybe not quite the same as it was then but I don't that's not to say that the film isn't as good I think it almost makes it better because it's such an incredible time capsule of you know what it was to be you know the Reaganomics era Um, and then Prince of Darkness I mean They Live is a John Carpenter film that everyone should see Uh, Prince of Darkness is maybe more for the John Carpenter fans I'm not, not I wasn't the biggest fan of it I think it obviously has a lot of his touches in it and there are some great horror moments of people being just consumed by beetles which is fun it's like this beetle man (laughs) I can't really describe it very well Oh, the John Lennon uh, Paul McCartney Ringo and George yeah or Beetlejuice which is also coming out for the 30th anniversary which is one of my favourite films of all time very influenced by Lydia Dietz in my personal life no what a surprise. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll drop a mention of that in as well. Mm. Maybe... Deo. There you go. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> By the way, and John Carpenter, and, and I'm very aware that uh, I kind of I've dropped in Elvis references uh, this week. I did with Jane Fonda as well. But John Carpenter also directed um, uh, the Elvis biog as well. Three Elvis references. Just thought I'd throw that in. Is that a record? How many? What's the most Elvis references that you've made in a show? In a show? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's probably hundreds. It's probably the first <laughs> one I did, actually. I think I've Elvis every third word. 
Uh, although there is actually a connection between the Evil Dead and John Carpenter, which is that Sam Raimi was originally, he was just a comedy director. He had no interest in horror, didn't really like horror, was very scared by them. But he was told that the only way that you're going to make money on a low-budget film is to make a horror film. And so he decided that he was going to do some research and the first film that he saw was Halloween. So oh, There you go. Good dropping connection. some trivia. Not dropping the mic. <laughs> Speaking of which, it's that time again. Hey, Clarice. A big day in home entertainment on Monday is one of the greatest and most influential films ever, ever made gets a very special re-release, dealing with themes of existentialism, human evolution, technology, artificial intelligence, and the possibility of extraterrestrial life with pioneering special effects. A doggone Christmas gets a DVD release. As does Lesser Film 2001 A Space Odyssey, which gets a 4K ultra-high-definition Blu-ray in premium collectible packaging. For the first time since the original release, last year new 70mm prints were struck from pristine printing elements made from the original camera negative by none other than Christopher Nolan. Other releases for your consideration include Whitney, Leave No Trace, They Live, Candyman and Nick Cage in Mandy. You came and... Ian Johnson, a strong selection once again, but I reckon Leave No Trace will get the nod for the newbies and I hope the underappreciated They Live is the oldie option. Ben Watson says, This seems like the most expensive Monday in the history of Mondays. Mandy is the newbie of choice, but compared to the reissues, it doesn't stand a chance of ending up in my trolley. New prints of The Fog, They Live, 2001, Project A, Project A Part 2, and my go-to comfort blanket of a movie, Rushmore, means I'll be destitute living in a shelter built from Blu-ray cases. Andy Bradshaw says, Candyman, saw it 20-odd years ago, never want to watch it again. Thank you. 2001 A Space Odyssey, anyone who says the ending is a masterpiece is lying. The whole trip through the wormhole Stargate, whatever the hell it is, is just incomprehensible nonsense. The rest of the film is great, though. Conor McGale says, so many quality films this week, but for me, but for me it has to be Leave No Trace with its show, don't tell storytelling and brilliant performances by Ben Foster and Thomas E. McKenzie. It's tender, insightful, heartbreaking, but hopeful. If I see a better film this year, I'll be amazed. Clarice, Clarice, what's your DVD of the week? So should we do new new one first? Yeah. So Leave No Trace, I think, would be my choice because it's such a, it's just such a beautiful film that is strangely uplifting, even though it's about people going through a really difficult period in their life. That it's a, a father and a daughter who are homeless and they're trying to survive in the woods and. You know, they're having the, the police try to move them on, um, but then they're also trying to find a community that they can stay with. And I think what I find so uplifting about it is that it has such hope in humanity, even though they're going through such a difficult situation, such a hard time in their lives, that everyone they come across has a desire to do good. Even the police that are having to, to you know, destroy their camp and move them on and say, you can't stay here they're not doing it out of evil. They're doing it because this is their job and they have to do it. And you can feel them wanting to treat them with compassion, but not being able to because they exist in this system in which, you know, they have these outrageous laws saying, oh, the forest is owned by this certain person, so it's private land. And, you know, I think 
I don't know. Yeah, it's just this, this sense of compassion to the whole film that really makes it so moving for me. And the oldie? Well, that's going to be 2001 A Space Odyssey. I don't think it's fair. You can't put that on the list and then just expect me to even look at the other ones. But I will say the thing with A Space Odyssey, particular to DVD of the week, is that I am always really struck by how powerful it is on any size screen. Like, I've watched it on a little laptop screen and I'm still sitting there, like, having a completely, you know, earth-moving experience. And I find that incredible because, obviously... Stanley Kubrick didn't make it for a lot. He didn't wasn't thinking that anyone was going to watch this film on a laptop. So well, he, he, had he no... thought nobody was going to watch his film about you know landing on the moon. But then you know everyone believed it. True. <laughs> Those are your DVDs of the week, and that's it from us. Thank you very much once again. This is my annual birthday treat, so uh, uh, it's always uh, lovely to be on. And uh, Mark and Simon are back, of course, next week. Collective cheer the universe uh, with their special guest Kerry Mulligan uh, until then and until next time see ya bye <laughs>